Praise the Lord. It's good to see God's people. Amen? Amen. I'm probably going to preach one of the shortest sermons I've ever preached tonight. And if you know me personally, then you know how difficult that is for me. <laughs> because I love the Word of God. I love to preach. And, uh, but I also don't want to wear out the saints of the Most High. So uh, I think that this message is a powerful message. I think it's one that's, um, that's simple. It's not too complex. I think it's something that we should be able to understand, something that we should be able to apply in practical living and understanding of what it means to be a last-day remnant Christian. And as Pastor has clearly introduced already, uh, the title of this message is Kingdom Values and Christian Living. And I know Pastor just prayed a wonderful prayer as we opened up the presentation, and I certainly appreciate that. But before I dive into this message, I would also like to ask the Holy Spirit uh, to add an extra special blessing and guidance upon myself as I uh, present this message. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, you are so wonderful, and um, God, we're so blessed to be here tonight to be alive during these times, to be alive on this wonderful day. And Lord, as we are now contemplating on what it means to be spiritually renewed in you, to have spiritual revival, to be a new person in Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that this message will be abundantly clear and that each and every one of us will gain something from it tonight, including myself, Lord, that this is not just a message coming from Ryan Day, but also for Ryan Day. And Lord, I ask that you just give me the Holy Spirit, not my words, but yours, be communicated tonight. And may each and every one of us be drawn to our uplifted Savior, we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. I love reading the Gospels. I love reading all the Bible. But I love reading the Gospels particularly because there is no person in all of Scripture that knows how to get to the heart of an issue than that of Jesus, right? It's very, very clear that while there are many complex subjects and many uh, uh, um, very deep topics uh, that we often like to discuss and we often like to kind of dissect to understand better and all of those things are great, uh, we know that Jesus Christ was really the champion at bypassing all of the spider webs and getting right to the heart of the issue. I love reading all of the Gospels because all of the Gospel writers put this on display very clearly as they communicate Jesus having these different conversations, whether it be the Pharisees or his disciples or just the average layman who are out there coming to him and seeking him and hoping to gain wisdom. And of course, Jesus was always there to get right to the heart of the issue. I love the, the great Sermon on the Mount as Jesus is preaching his heart out there. But yet he says powerful things like, you know, you've heard that you should not murder, right? one of the commandments. But he takes it a little bit further. He gets to the heart of the issue. He says, but I say that if you hate your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder, right? And you could imagine some of the folk that's hearing this, you know, just kind of their mind blown. Whoa, we've never heard these words before. He takes it a step further. He says, you've heard not to commit adultery. But I say to you that if you look upon a woman and lust after her in your heart, you have already committed adultery, Another passage that you find where Jesus simply gets to the heart of the issue in which he's actually examining hearts, we find in Matthew chapter 15. So let's go there, Matthew chapter 15, 
And we're finding in this chapter, Jesus, of course, is having one of his famous discussions or one of his famous debates, even though Jesus, I don't think, was uh, necessarily a debater. We know that the Pharisees love to try to catch Jesus off guard. They love to put him on the stand just to try to see what his response is going to be in hopes of, of catching him off his guard and maybe catch him in something that they might be able to condemn him for. But we see there in Matthew chapter 15... And uh, they have this interesting conversation with Jesus. And so I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. It says, And the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your own tradition?" For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. Verse 5, it says, But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whoever profit you might, or whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. And then he says the strong words. He says, hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying. And here comes those famous words, verses 8 and 9. These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I can relate to this conversation, this passage. As you can see there, Jesus bypasses all of the garbage, per se, and he gets right to the heart of the issue. They're wanting to talk about traditional little man made laws here and there. Oh, you, you got to do these things and these things and that and this and that. And all these things that our traditional elders have upheld for centuries, those are the things that are most important. And you and your disciples, well, they just overlook them. And, you know, they just simply, they disrespect us in that way. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. He bypasses the garbage. He gets right to the heart of the issue. And he tells them what what's their issue was. He says, you're so used to upholding your traditions. There is a particular way that might seem right to you, but yet you're bypassing one of the most important aspects of all. And that is not obedience to man-made laws, but obedience to God's holy law. Not that Jesus was communicating that salvation comes by the keeping of a law, but yet he was revealing to them where their love lied at that moment. That their heart was not into service to God, but that their heart was more in service to each other and upholding their man-made traditions. I remember growing up in the church, and when I say the church, I'm speaking Christian church broadly because I wasn't raised a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, but I grew up as a little Pentecostal boy, seeing things, experiencing things that would forever stick in my mind that I would never forget. And I would often see things in the church. I would often experience things with my own eyes. And I would question and wonder, what is this about? One of the texts that I often read or heard read in sermons, Bible studies, and many other presentations that might be given, was one of my favorite texts today that I love to reflect upon 
and be often reminded. And that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become what? In other words, the Apostle Paul is simply communicating under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that when a man comes to Christ, he knows Christ. He gets to know Christ. He has a relationship with Christ. Christ is not going to leave that man in the same, in the same position that he was before. He's not going to leave him in that same condition. That the old man will pass away. and Behold, all things become new. But as a young man growing up in the church, I was confused by this passage. Because I said to myself, Lord, if this is true, and your word is true, then what is all this? Of course, some of the things that I'm talking about is, I'll give you a few examples. You see, children and young people are very perceptive. They may not have it all figured out. They may not have all the answers. They may not be able to perceive things in a more mature way than maybe an, an, an older adult may, but yet they're very perceptive, and they see things that sometimes they don't fully understand. That was me for the better part of my Christian upbringing. I remember going to church, and I'll just give you a few examples as it pertains to the message. I remember going to church, and I saw all kinds of things in the Pentecostal church that only you could imagine. Um, you know, lots of charisma, lots of pew jumping and hopping, lots of shaking and gyrating, lots of, you know, foaming at the mouth and, you know, all of that they call speaking in tongues, which really is none other than the a form of babbling, you know, just, in, you know, babbling off, you know, incoherent syllables that no man can understand and, and seeing people sprint and run around the church and all of this, just for, you know, just to illustrate that for a moment, all of this was, of course, uh, kind of brought under the banner or at least tagged as the work of the Holy Spirit. And I remember this one particular day, there was a young man that came to our church, and uh, he, he had been there for a while, and we were getting to know him, but I'll never forget this one day, this young man, he was often known, he was a younger guy, probably in his mid to late 20s, good looking guy, and he would come to church, and he was actually one of the most charismatic people in our church. In fact, you knew when the Holy Spirit fell upon him. I'm using that loosely, okay, and respectfully, because we know that wasn't the Holy Spirit, but you know, again, it was perceived that way. That when the Spirit fell upon him, you knew when that brother got the Spirit because he was the loudest one in all the church. He would let out this loud scream, this loud yell, woo! And then before you know it, every eye was turned in that direction and his feet would be skipping so fast and so hard and he would go into this trance-like dance. And then of course the whole church would erupt into praises and woo, praise the Lord. You know, the Holy Spirit's moving up on these young men. This happened quite often. And I would just kind of set, most of the time I was the drummer, so I'm up at the drums and I'm playing and I'm watching this just a few feet away. And then I'll never forget one day, right after, it was on a Sunday morning, right after church service, after this young man did all of this, he asked my father, hey, you know, can I take the boys out on the boat? Just got me a new bass boat, gonna, you know, take it out up on the river and just, you know, take it for a stream. And we're just, we're so excited, me and Dakota, we're like, man, yeah, let's do this, right? We were so excited to go out on the boats for a little, you know, Sunday uh, uh, drive or, or, or float up on the river. 
But uh, I'll never forget on the way there, he stopped by a gas station and he went in and he came out with this big pack of something. It was kind of hard to tell at first what it was. And then we went out, you know, he had it wrapped in a bag and then we went out on the boat that day and I'll never forget, he was, we're driving out on the boat, he pulled out this rather round, interesting looking can of stuff and he began to... And then he opened it up and he pulled out what looked like worm dirt and he commenced to shove it into his lip. Well, immediately I knew what it was because I saw had family members that, that did it. But as a young man perceiving this and watching this, I was confused because the thing that came to my mind is, wait a second, old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And this brother just had the Holy Spirit this morning. On another occasion, I was going to another Pentecostal church and an elder of our church was preaching a sermon and he, boy, he was just going, going at it. And then the next night I saw him at the ball game and as we were coming out of the ball game, his team had lost the game and he was coming out and he didn't know that I was just a few feet behind him and this elder at the church was just cursing some of the worst profanities that you could ever hear a man utter. And I remember as a young man hearing myself and saying, wait a second, I thought people who are full of the Holy Spirit don't act like that. And of course, there was another occasion. There was another occasion where it was in the Adventist church. I had a, young, I had a man uh, tell me, he came up to me. It was, I was a brand new Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And he came up to me and he said, he said, well, he said, um, I can tell you don't know much about the health message. And I said, uh, I reckon I don't, whatever that is. And he commenced to tell me all about this health message and how important it was and how that if I didn't eat certain ways and all this, that I wasn't in relationship with Christ. And, and boy, he did all, you know, he made it very clear to me that what you're doing and the way you're living and, you know, based on your looks, that you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't know the Lord. And so guess what? You need to, you know, shape up and get, get on board. And so I went home and I watched all this man's DVDs he was giving me. And I was just blown away. I was like, man, this is amazing stuff. And then one day he invited me over to his house to, to, uh, to you know, have some Bible studies. And I'll never forget, uh, as I pulled up in the driveway, he didn't see me kind of pulling up behind him. And he, he turned around and he was doing this. So growing up, in the Christian church in general, I didn't really understand what it meant to be a true Christian. Because the values that I was taught and seeing in the scripture was not necessarily upheld among the brethren that I spent my time around within the church. Now, are there good people, wonderful people who practice all of these wonderful principles and kingdom values that we see in the Bible? Do they practice that in the church? Absolutely. But my idea growing up is, you know what? It must not be that big of a deal. Jesus still loves us, right? Apparently it's okay for them. It's okay for me too. So I wasn't always a very dedicated Christian. In fact, for the most part of my upbringing, my Christian upbringing, at least for four to five years of that, you know, I was going to church on Sunday and going to the club on the weekends and DJing it up, playing some of the most horrible music that one could possibly ever imagine. Doing some of the most profane dance moves that anybody could possibly ever imagine. I was a performer. That's what I did. That's what I did with my time. 
But there was always something that led me back to the word of the Lord. For some reason, I always was led back to the word of God. And I would find texts like this. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And when will that happen? Before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. No, wait a second, Lord. You're, you're going to pour out your spirit upon all flesh in these last days? Now, wait a second. If it's your spirit and, and what your word is saying is one thing, but what I'm seeing is another, Lord, something ain't matching up. And then I'd read a little further. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord hath said and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Wait a second, Lord, you, you have a remnant? You, you got a remnant? A, a, a people that really, really live according to what your word says? Lord, I've yet to see that. I struggled with this. I would find some other powerful text that would really speak to me and awaken me to study more and to look into this. For instance, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, speaking of his people, his church, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Well, I wasn't seeing nothing peculiar growing up. I didn't know what that meant. You know what peculiar meant? What does peculiar mean? A peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of what? Called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Wait a second. That sounds similar to the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become, become new. Wait a second, Lord. Are you saying that it's, it's, it's real? That you have a people that you're leading that are allowing you to sanctify them, to change them from one way that they used to be to another and therefore these people will reflect your character. They will reflect what I'm reading in this Bible because I ain't seen it yet. And then there's another one. These are just a few that would come across my mind often when Jesus said, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you, what? It shall make you free? What does that mean, Jesus? You're gonna set me free? You're gonna set other, you have a people that you want to set free or perhaps you have a people that you have set free? Lord, what does that mean? First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Amen. That's where usually in my church growing up, we'd stop right there. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We got a forgiving God. He's doesn't matter what you do. Hey, you know what? You want to speak in tongues one moment and then, you know, uh, smoke uh, and, and, and go to the club and, and, and play some horrible music and live the lifestyle of the devil one minute. As long as you just repent, Jesus loves you. That was my mentality, but I had never really focused in or read or had been presented to me the rest of this text in which it goes on to say that not only does he want to forgive you, but the Bible goes on to say that he wants to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Scratch the head, wonder, what? Jesus wants to cleanse me from all my unrighteousness? Lord, I've never seen this before. What does that look like? And perhaps maybe the one text that would shake me more than all of them. Because if you would have come up to me back during these times when I was living in such a way, if someone would have asked me, Ryan, are you a Christian? I would have said, yeah, man, I'm a Christian. 
Jesus is my savior and I'm saved. That was my response. I'm saved. But then I read this text one day and boy, it got me. Matthew chapter seven, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, again, what does Jesus often do? He gets to the heart of the issue. He goes to the heart. And so notice what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. See, many, many preachers growing up would manipulate the text and the message in which Jesus would say, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. So I would often go to the front, you know, where the altars are in the Pentecostal churches, and I would just call out, Lord Jesus, save me. And you know what? I believe that God knew my heart. I believe he knew that I was sincere because I was ignorant, didn't really know very much. But nonetheless, my mentality was, you know what? Just call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved, plain and simple. And you don't need to know the rest of the story. But notice, Jesus takes it a little further. He says, uh, he says, but him who does the will of my Father, which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them mm, the most haunting words you could ever hear from your Savior. I know you not, or I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I remember reading this text for the first time, and it hit me like a ton of bricks, and I thought to myself, wait a second, Lord, but I'm saved. And the Holy Spirit said, are you? But, but Lord, I've, I've, you know, I'm, I go to church... <laughs> I'm saved, right? Because I go to church. <laughs> you know, I, say, I, say, I say my prayers when I eat and when I, when I lay down at night. And, 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 uh, and oh, Lord, I, I go to revivals. And remember, I go to the front, you know, when the altar call comes. And, I, you know, I'll say some prayers then. And, Lord, I'm saved. And you say, are you? You see, what we see presented in this text here, which many of us have read many times, but sometimes we fail to realize that Jesus is discussing a group of people who are fully convinced that they have a relationship with the Lord when really they don't. That they are convinced, they are convinced that they are saved when they're really not. Because, as Paul would say, they have a form of godliness, but they're denying the power thereof. What? Lord, surely this can't be me. And then it became clear as I focused in on that last part. I, don't, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness. You see, obedience is as much maligned as, and misunderstood truth. It is a much maligned and misunderstood truth. Obeying God's commandments ultimately leads to the healing of humanity and always benefits the individuals who practice it. It's a true expression of our love for Jesus. But yet in the, 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 the experience that I grew up in, I didn't see this. I didn't understand what this was. I didn't understand what it meant to really live for God in lifestyle and in choices. Because what had been taught to me is that as long as you love Jesus, that's all that matters. But yet it's funny that that's what was taught to me because Jesus himself would say, but if you love me, keep my commandments. That's why we find these powerful words 
in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. We've read them so many times, but let us put the heart of the matter out on the table here so we understand it clearly in reference and in connection with this message. Notice what is said here. It says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his what? His commandments. And then that famous verse there in verse 3, 1 John 5, verse 3, it says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You see, it's one thing to profess that you know Christ. It's another thing to live as if you do. It's one thing to profess that you follow him, that you live for him, that you're connected to him, that you represent him. But it's another thing as he looks and judges you according to the works of your life, Jesus gets to the heart. He looks into the heart and he knows whether or not you are genuinely his or not. Same thing with the Pharisees. They were the scholars of all scholars. They knew the Bible. At that time, the Old Testament scriptures better than anyone. But yet, as they would honor him with their lips, Yahweh is our God. Jehovah is our God. Yet their heart was far from him. I love this next very clear but profound statement. Profession has convincing power only. What's the word? Only when it is lived out in real life. When we do what is right, honest, and true, and stand up for the biblical values of God's kingdom, we create possibilities for God not only to act on our behalf, but to touch the lives of others. You know, David, the Bible says, is a man after God's own heart. But yet David made many mistakes, right? David was forgiven for those mistakes, but what set David apart from all of the others in his day is this David was not all about just lip service. David lived as if there was a God. That's why a powerful question that he asked in the 15th chapter of Psalms, very, very first verse, notice what he says, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill or, or upon your holy mountain. Lord, who's going who's gonna to do that? Same question I'm asking. Lord, based on what I'm seeing around here, who in the world is going to make it to heaven? Because this ain't matching up with what I'm seeing in God's word. And the answer he gives in verses 2 through 4. Notice what he says. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbors, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. That's powerful. He has a remnant. And the question I would like to pose today in simplicity and very clear foundation upon what we're studying, are you one of those remnant?
Are we professed believers in the Lord? Or are we clear, active believers of the Lord? You know, God asked Jeremiah, and I actually think that this is a typo up here. As I'm looking down at my notes here, I can see I might have made a typo. It's not Psalm 31. It's actually Jeremiah chapter 5, and I believe it might be verse 31. Somebody can correct me on that if they find that, and I'll correct it. But it's in the fifth chapter of Jeremiah. And notice what God tells Jeremiah. Notice the counsel that he gives him. In the days of the hype of apostasy in Israel. He says, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know and seek in her open places. If you can find a man. If there is anyone who executes judgment. Who seeks the truth. And I will pardon her. He says, go out in the highways and the byways and find me someone who's standing in the gap. Do I have a repairer of the breach up in here? That's what God is saying to Jeremiah. Please go search them out because I can't find them. It's powerful to consider. But I want to ask the question. Will God find that person today? Can he find a peculiar servant that is spiritually renewed and balanced in their Christian representative choices and lifestyle? Does God have a man or a woman who is living for him, that is representing him, that's not just doing lip service, but is being obedient to him, not because it's a means of salvation, but because they have a true loving relationship with him. You know, it's amazing talking about hypocrisy and talking about how this drastically affects the church. You know, we, we could sit here and talk about this for hours, about how we all have our downfalls, we all have our struggles, and we're all, it just seems like we're, we're, some of us are just crawling our way to heaven, right? But when I was doing some research for a sermon that I did a couple of years ago, I found some startling information. Now, this information is a little dated, and, and I would have presented something that was a little more updated, but I couldn't find any newer data on this particular issue. But it's pertaining to um, the retention rate of youth within our churches. And it's not, I mean, it's very clear that our, that our youth, and you know, we're struggling in that area. We're struggling in that area to keep our youth in the churches. In fact, if you remember that sermon, it was entitled Euthanasia. And I presented the startling statistic that based on 2013, 2012 and 13 studies uh, from the General Conference, they found that for every 10 people that we won to, you know, you know converted or won into the Seventh-day Adventist Church as legitimate members on the books, that for every 10 members we were winning, four were leaving. And then when they dug a little deeper to find out within the data of those four out of 10 that are leaving, they found out that the majority, in other words, more than 75% of the four that were leaving the church was young people from the ages of upper teens to mid-30s. So then they did a little bit of a survey and they asked those young people, as they handed this out to thousands, 
They wanted to know why they either chose to left the church or why they hadn't been as committed in continuing to be active and involved in the church. And one of the, the number one reason, here it is. Now there's many reasons, okay? This isn't goes for everybody. But the number one reason that reoccurred and became the number one reason as to why they either chose to leave the church or decided not to be, uh, continue actively involved and committed in the church, uh, it was, you could, it's hard to see up on here. I'll read you that long line there. That, see that long, tall bar there at the, at the far left? Okay, here it is. Perceived hypocrisy in other church members. Now, yes, I will stand here and say, each and every one of us have our own responsibility to the Lord. The hypocrisy of someone else should not be the reason why we don't commit to God's kingdom. Okay, I'm not going to let some other person's hypocrisy keep me from being actively involved in my church. Okay, now that might just be that the Lord's brought me a long ways. I don't know. But nonetheless, the data still exists and it is still real. The fact that the hypocrisy exists and it's a major, major turnoff to these younger folk who want to be involved, but yet they don't see any reason to become involved. Why? Well, let me give it to you from one. It's very interesting. This is an actual quote. I didn't put the name up here for privacy reasons, but in the data that came out, there was a young person that actually submitted their response and here was their response to, in, in, in connection with this study. Here's what they said. They said, you adults out there would be surprised if you knew how much we youth follow your examples. So don't be hypocritical. Don't ignore us when we come to you for help. Don't treat us like we were unintelligent subhuman life forms. But most of all, care. Don't be afraid to show a little love once in a while. I wish that SDAs would love one another for what they are and not destroy their fellow member with hatred and criticism. That's, that's, a, that's a for show comment right there. I just say it. You see, we have often two warring groups within God's church that creates this divide. It's very prominent. But I want to read a quote that really shook me a few months ago. Um, I've actually read through this before, but it didn't really stick out to me until my brother showed it to me a few weeks ago. And I asked him to send it to me. I said, send me that quote. That's a powerful quote. And I thought that it went perfectly along with what we're talking about tonight. So here it is. It comes from Desire of Ages, page 309. This is powerful. Here it is. Lengthy, but powerful. The greatest deception of, hum of the human mind in Christ's day was that a mere ascension to the truth constitutes righteousness. In all human experience, a theoretical knowledge of the truth has been proved to be insufficient for the saving of the soul. It does not bring forth the fruits of righteousness. A jealous regard for what is termed theological truth often accompanies a hatred of genuine truth as made manifest in life. The darkest chapters of history are burdened with the record of crimes committed by bigoted religionists. The Pharisees claimed to be children of Abraham and boasted of their possessions of the oracles of God. Yet these advantages did not preserve them from selfishness, malignity, greed for gain, and the basest hypocrisy. 
They thought themselves the greatest religionists of the world, but their so-called orthodoxy led them to crucify the Lord of glory. The same danger still exists. Don't miss this, my friends. We're talking about kingdom values, Christian living. The same danger still exists. Many take it for granted that they are Christians simply because they subscribe to certain theological tenets. 28 fundamentals. But they have not brought the truth into practical life. They have not believed and loved it. Therefore, they have not received the power and grace that come through sanctification of the truth. And she ends with this. Men may profess faith in the truth, but if it does not make them, and I love this list here, and I want you to focus in on this list and what's not in this list. So here it is. Men may profess faith in the truth, but if it does not make them sincere, kind, patient, forbearing, heavenly-minded, it is a curse to its possessors and through their influence, it is a curse to the world. God doesn't want lip service. He wants committed followers of Christ. God never called a perfect man. In fact, I've never met a perfect man. But God as the word says, has a committed remnant who are living a balanced Christian lifestyle, kingdom values, and Christian living. You see, I talked about those two groups. Many of us fall into one of three categories. You said, you heard me say two groups, but I said many of us fall into one of three categories. Two of these groups I'd like to talk about briefly for a moment. The first one is the ultra-conservative, pharisaical mentality. You know what I'm talking about. Those people that they believe that they've got it all figured out. They eat the perfect diet. They wear the perfect clothes. They have the perfect ideological thinking when it comes to all of the fundamental Christian beliefs. And there is nothing that they can say or do that is not in line with what the Holy Spirit has told them to do. Even if it means presenting the gospel or a truth to someone in such a way that will not bring them to Christ but drive them further away. The Pharisees their ultra-conservative, religious, bigoted attitude. But then there's another group that always finds themselves on the far extreme side. And Jesus, through his revelation to John, calls this group the Nicolaitans. Now, if you've done any study on the Nicolaitans, let me tell you a little bit about these Nicolaitans real quick here. I just want to say, so who are these Nicolaitans? Now, of course, I'm talking about the spirit of the Nicolaitans, which we know comes from the spirit of the enemy, and the spirit of the Pharisees, which we know comes from the spirit of the enemy. But here's what the, here's what the Nicolaitans were all about. So uh, do a little bit of research, and you find that um, 
Hippolytus and uh, also Irenaeus, which were you know, well-known historians of the 2nd and 3rd century, they tell us that the Nicolaitans were heretical followers of Nicholas. Now, uh, of course, this was one of the seven deacons that was mentioned in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. So, now, if this is true, based on what they present in history, in their historical writings, Nicholas would have apostatized from the faith, which is where you get this Nicolaitan mentality or this Nicolaitan perspective. But check this out. The Nicolaitans were a group who taught a radical dualism between the body and the soul, okay? A radical dualism between the body and the soul. They're separate, and here's what they said. They believe that what is done with the body cannot in any way defile the soul. Therefore, they taught that believers are freed from the law and that they can do as they please. Does that sound familiar? Somebody might call this group liberal. You got the ultra-conservatives, the Pharisees, the religious bigots. And then over here, you got the liberals, which they just love Jesus. They, they just, they're saved. They have a relationship with Jesus, but they, their lifestyle obviously doesn't, doesn't speak it because they believe that there's nothing they can say or do that can necessarily separate them, as you might hear a Christian say, from the love of God. Two separate groups warring within the church. And it's the spirit of the enemy working both sides to keep people confused about what true Christianity really is. In fact, Jesus refers to this Nicolaitan group as the compromising church. And it's interesting because he speaks about the Nicolaitans to Ephesus. And he says to Ephesus, uh, to the church at Ephesus there, he says, but this you have, this is Revelation 2 verse 6, but this you have that I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which, or that you hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus, I hate these, these, these people's mentality. That's not what I'm about. Kingdom values, Christian living. I want to read you one more quote, and I have one more text before I close. This next one comes from That I May Know Him, page 306. Notice what it says We deny Jesus Christ as the one who taketh away the sins of the world if we do not, after accepting the truth, Reveal to the world the sanctifying efforts or effects of the truth on our own characters. If we are not better men and women, if we are not more kind-hearted, notice this list again. If we are not more kind-hearted, more pitiful, more courteous, more full of tenderness and love, if we do not manifest to others the love that led Jesus in, or to the world on his mission of mercy, we are not witnesses to the world of the power of Jesus Christ. I have learned in my life, it's been a long journey, and I'm certainly not through yet, because I still got a lot of learning myself to do. But there's one thing that I have learned, is that we must be balanced in our approach of living for Christ, and living before our brethren. 
Now, if you come to me and say, Ryan, what does that balance look like? I'm still learning. It's a journey. It's a sanctifying, lifelong work. It's a journey. We don't want to find ourselves with the spirit of the Pharisees or the spirit of the Nicolaitans. We want to find ourselves among that third group, the remnant, the remnant church of God. Those who are sanctified by the love of Christ. Who are allowing, as Isaiah 60 says, their light to so shine before men so that the Gentiles and the people of the world in the darkness of this world, they come to their light because they see not their own light, but the light of Jesus Christ shining through them. That's why I will always revert back to the heart of the gospel. And the heart of the gospel can simply be summed up in this last text here. Jesus said, if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You see, whether you find yourself with the spirit of a Pharisee or being infused with the spirit of a Nicolaitan, whether you consider yourself a conservative or a liberal, at the end of the day, if you're not being drawn to Jesus Christ and you're not drawing others to Jesus Christ, then you're just no different than any of the Pharisees or any of the Nicolaitans. As Jesus would say to the Pharisees, you draw nigh unto me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And then when you go a little further, a little deeper and study, you find it really is a sad situation when you really contemplate on what Jesus meant when he said, in vain you do worship me. What? In vain you worship me. This is why it says that in no other place in all the Bible is salvation made more simple and more clear than in John chapter 3. And I love that, you know, I love that passage, but it's interesting that most people, when they think of John 3, they think of John 3.16. Powerful verse. Love it. But I think the verse that speaks most to me that actually goes hand in hand with John 12.32 is when Jesus is describing the simplicity of the gospel on what it means to live holy and be converted and born again through Jesus Christ. He said... As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall also the Son of Man be lifted up. And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You see, we cannot begin to live according to the kingdom of God, according to the will of God, and we cannot begin to live a balanced Christian lifestyle until we first make sure that the cross is always set before us. That Jesus Christ, the uplifted Savior, is always set before us. We have all these witnessing tactics and this witnessing mentality that we think is so awesome, that we think is so effective. But at the end of the day, if it's not presented within the light of the cross and the uplifted Savior, then what, what good are we doing? Witnessing to anyone. And the same thing goes for our own conversion. God cannot change a person, and He will not change a person until they begin to see Jesus Christ high 
and lifted up. That's the gospel. And every single one of these messages this entire week can be summed up into that one verse right there. Because if we're going to have a spiritual renewal and we're going to be renewed each and every day through Jesus Christ to live according to His will, at some point, every single day, we have to spend some time at the foot of the uplifted Savior. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I pray that this message has brought you glory. Lord, I pray that these are not just words that go in one ear and out the other, but that this message will be up on the heart of each and every listener as well as the speaker. And that during the times that we're living in, Lord, may we take them serious. This is not a game. This is not just some coincidental happenstance of some kind. Lord, this is, this is real life because you're a real God and you have a real kingdom and we know that you want us in it. And so, Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name that each and every one of us will humble ourselves and pray and seek you high and lifted up. Humble us, Lord. Help us to see our need of you each and every day more and more so that the old man can indeed pass away and everything that you do in us becomes new. We praise you and we thank you. And as always, we pray this in confidence and in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.